it is a notoriously uncomfortable story. The story of Uzzah and the ark usually has us shifting about in our seats, feeling uneasy, right? a little bit twitchy, and rightfully so. And what are we to make of the shocking, deathly interaction? How do we reconcile something so severe with something that seems like a reflex of goodwill? How do we understand this? Is this some divine, cruel, and unusual punishment? And like, what is this odd God-in-a-box arc thing anyway? This is weird. How does a scene point us to Jesus in any way, shape, or form? How does this point us to the love and the mercy of God? Well, what we need to do is we need to step back and see how this story fits within the larger story. So we're not just reading it across the surface, but we're getting into, into the depths of it. So please hang in there with me today because we're going to go through a good deal of, of stories and text. And we're going to see that this is not just some ancient oddity that we're reading about, but that this is a very relevant reality to each and every one of us. So back we go some 3,000 years ago. The place of God's presence has been tucked away in obscurity for years. The vessel of God's presence is hidden away for decades in a small village. And during King Saul's reign, the Ark of God's presence, the very centerpiece of the tab- tabernacle of God, uh, the, the throne of God, that, that should be the centerpiece of the people. It's just, it's sidelined, which tells us a lot about King Saul. King Saul was a king, but King Saul wasn't the king who served a greater king. It kind of stopped with him. And so the ark, the throne, was sidelined. Now at one point, the ark is stolen by the Philistines, the perpetual enemies of God's people. And fascinating story here. The ark was kept in a place called Shiloh, but it's eventually brought out to battle. And it's brought out in an inappropriate way, in a superstitious kind of way, in a let's use God in the way that we want to our advantage when we want to use him kind of way. So it's a we have a God in a box mentality and we're going to use our God when we believe it's a good time to use them. So in short, they believe that if they carry the ark into battle, it's going to ensure victory. It's a, it's a trope repeated, right? Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Why do the Nazis steal the ark? So they can win, right? So they can have power over the whole world, right? So if we just take the ark forward, then we will win. <clears throat> that's the thought. That's the mentality. Now, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, <clears throat> they bring out the ark to the battlefield. But it's done by the corrupt priesthood. So you have two guys, Hophni and Phinehas, um, and they, they want to control, they want to manage the presence of God that is here in this, in this box. But God's going to have none of it. So the Philistines actually end up winning the battle. Hophni and Phinehas, the corrupt priests, they're wiped out, they're dead, and now the ark is captured. God was not pleased with Israel in this crass mishandling of the ark, and God is not happy that the Philistines have it either. And in short, it's in the Philistines' hands for seven months. How does that go for them? Like, really bad. Like trouble after trouble after trouble comes their way, all sorts of plagues. It's very much like the, the Exodus plagues, right? So these plagues come, and they finally realize, they're like, we got to get rid of this thing. Like this God is way too powerful. This is not good. So they send it away. They send it away on an ox cart. The ark ends up on an ox cart, and it goes to a town called Beth Shemesh. Here's a picture of Beth Shemesh. Uh, this is what it looks like today. These are the ruins. Uh, 
this is not myth, this is history, you know, so this is the town where the ark first goes, it's on an ox, ox cart, um, and let's show the next picture. This is a Gustave Doré picture, um, and this is him drawing, uh, this is the rendition of the ark coming. You see it in the back, the ark, with the, the angel and cherubim wings, and then the oxen, and then the Israelites are like, it's back, it's back, and this should be this super glorious celebratory scene, but it doesn't go so well either, right? Uh, what they do, well, they do what they're not commanded to do. They open up the ark like some odd curiosity or some fun Easter egg to look into and what happens. Yeah, the end of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark scene, right? They, they die. It's not good. So the whole experience rattles the people of Beth Shemesh and they're like, get it out of Dodge. We don't want it here. Send it away. And so then the ark is now sent to a place that our text calls Baal Judah, also known as Kiriath Jerim. And here it goes to the house of a man named Abinadab. So, so there's a, an old picture of Kiriath-Jerim. It's about nine miles or so from, from Jerusalem. And it's going to stay here in this obscure village at minimum 20 years, but more likely 50 plus years. So decades. It's going to be here in obscurity for decades. Okay, that is the crucial backdrop to interpret today's passage well. So in our passage today, Saul has died. David has been publicly enthroned as the king. After all those years of running in the wilderness, he is now publicly king, the anointed king. And so he has now moved the capital to Jerusalem, the perfect spot between north and south uh, Israel. And he wants to bring the ark to Jerusalem because David is a king who serves a greater king. And he says the throne of God needs to be where the throne is because it's God that we serve. It's under his rule and it's under his reign that we live and operate and that we have our beings. And so he's going to move the ark to Jerusalem. So some really good intentions are here. But these good intentions are about to go really, really bad. So let's see this uncomfortable but important story unfold. Verse 1, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. So David calls in about 30,000 of his officers to talk about bringing the ark to Jerusalem. And then he's going to bring these 30,000 plus, many more, actually from everyone, pretty much from, from Egypt up to Syria, it says. He's going to call them all to have this massive, big, joyous party, this big, fancy production, uh, this uh, movement of the ark from obscurity into limelight. It's going to be this glorious parade, the glorious parade, right? It's, it's like a mega, mega, mega church gathering. And so the crowds arrive at the storage facility at Abinadab's house. Now, Abinadab's house is on a hill. We have a picture of that as well. So this is the hill of Kiriath-Jerim. This is the ancient hill where the city was. And our text tells us his house is up on the hill. His house is up on the hill. So this is a modern picture, obviously, of that ancient city where the ark was in Abinadab's house. Now, let's pause here for a moment um, because I want to talk about the ark because there can be some confusion about the ark. Uh, this past week, we were having dinner <clears throat> and we have three little kids and our youngest, her name's Olivia, so we're, we're doing devotions. We, we, we try to do devotions at dinner. I'm not saying we do devotions at dinner, like we're really holy. We try, but like it's messy and loud and just 
rough and tumble. We try. So we were trying to have a devotion on this passage. And my, my little daughter, Olivia, is over there, like, screwing her face up, looking all funny. And then eventually she just goes, wait, wait, wait. How can you have a big boat full of people on a wagon pulled by animals? It just makes no sense. <laughs> I was like, oh, it was so hard not to just, like, laugh, you know. Um, it's like, what a great question. Because she heard Ark and she heard... Noah, right? Not golden angels on a box full of all the sacred stuff. Okay, so she's thinking Noah, and she's thinking radio flyer holding a, pulling a boat with, you know, animal. It's just so good. Um, <clears throat> the point is, like, there's confusion about the ark. So let's kind of unconfuse it here for, for a moment. Okay, here's an artist's interpretation. There's thousands of artist's interpretations that you can find. Here's a rendering. Now, what is the ark? Well, the ark is the symbol and place of God's presence among his people. The ark is the symbol and place of God's presence among his people that we read about in the Old Testament, that we read about in scriptures. So God on Sinai delivers to Moses, after he brings the people out of slavery, uh, God delivers to Moses the blueprints for the tabernacle, the place of worship, and then the blueprints, the specs for all the, that sacred furniture that is symbolic, that has meaning, that, that's rich and thick in meaning, he gives blueprints for all that stuff that's going to go in the temple. And he gives the blueprints for the ark, which is to be the throne of God's presence, his footstool or his throne on earth, where the glory of God would rest and would radiate. Okay? It's made of acacia wood, common wood out in the desert there, out in the wastelands. Uh, it's overlaid with gold. It's a box. It's, it's a chest. It's about four feet long, and it's about 2.25 feet wide and high. It's, it's a little bit smaller than this table right here. So like four feet long, two, just two and a quarter feet uh, high and, and wide. So it's a chest, and the lid comes off it. See? So it's wood, and it's overlaid with gold. There's a couple things in, inside of it, three things. Aaron's staff, the staff that was used for all the miracles in redeeming the people out of slavery in Egypt, the staff, though it was dead, right, blossomed. The stone tablets of Moses, the, the Ten Commandments, the law of God, and then the jar of manna. Right? Remember, manna was that what is this stuff that falls from heaven to feed the people in the, in the wilderness? So those three things are in there. Then on top was the mercy seat. So those, the cherubim, those are the, the angels of Eden that guard Eden cherubim. Um, there's two angels there, and they form the mercy seat. And that's called the mercy seat because when the sacrifice was killed on the Day of Atonement, the priests would go in and pour the blood on top of that mercy seat. So there would be uh, bright crimson laid on that shining gold. Okay, so you have this place of sacrifice with, remembers, with reminders of God's work. That's what's going on there. Now, this might sound like, especially if you're first time here at church, this might sound like, like magical weirdness, okay? That's like, that's weird, okay? It's not. We'll see. I mean, it is, but it's not. We'll see. Okay, back to David and the stories currently in progress. Abinadab's sons are in charge of transporting this precious ark of God's presence. Then the dreadful thing happens. Verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord. With songs and lyres and harps and tambourines, castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God, took hold of it, for the oxen had 
stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Use your imagination here. The music's blaring, right? The strings are strumming. Electric guitars are up to 11, right? Drums are banging. The jubilant 30,000 plus a lot more people are there making a noise on this historic day. Again, a mega, 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 mega church party. But then the cart comes to a threshing floor, and the oxen stumble. The ark shifts, and it slips, and Uzzah, in reflex, right, in reflex to the movement, reaches out, and he grabs the ark, and that's it. That's it. He's done. Struck dead. In a millisecond, Uzzah is in the dust. The anger of the Lord is kindled. That's a hard verse for us. It's a hard verse to hear. What does that mean? The Lord's anger is lit up against Uzzah. Why? 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 This doesn't seem fair at all. Well, there's good reason, and this is not a case for, this is not the case of a fickle God, right? This is not the case of a hangry Yahweh having a real moody day and is like, can you just move along? I need a snack. That's not what's happening. Like, this is a serious moment. So we need to read well. And a shallow reading says, yikes, this just doesn't seem fair. The punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime. I don't like this Old Testament kind of God. He doesn't seem very kind. That's a shallow reading of the text. We need a deeper, healthier reading. So we need to see that Uzzah's heir is not simply reaching out to steady, you know, a piece of, of equipment, a holy cargo in transit. The trouble starts way before the transit began. The trouble starts way before the transit ever began. So let's go back. Verse 3, the trouble is in here in verse 3. Look at this. <clears throat> and they carry the ark of God on what? On a new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Benadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Benadab, were driving the what? The new cart with the ark of God and a heel went before the ark. The new cart. The ark should never have been on a cart in the first place. Why was it? The instructions are incredibly clear in the texts. So if you do the, the homework and you go back to Exodus 25, here's what we read. God was very clear in, in how he revealed himself and what he was looking for. And it all had meanings. It's not arbitrary. Because it points forward to something glorious. So in Exodus 25, verses 10 through 16, just so you can get a feel for some of the instructions. I know this, this is probably nobody's favorite verse in here, but here it is. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half will be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. Almost four feet and two and a quarter, two and a quarter. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. Shall you overlay it? You shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay those with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. Like That's super specific. It's not like, hey, make a box and do something with it. This is super specific. So here's the description and the specifications for how it's to be carried. How it's to be carried. Highly specified. Here's another passage. Numbers 4, 15, and chapter 7, verse 9. I put these together here. And when Aaron, the priest, and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and covering all the furnishings, which includes the ark 
um, as the camp sets out, they cover it all as they, they set out to, to travel. Um, after, after that, um, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things, lest they'll die. The sons of Kohath were charged with the service of the holy things that had to be carried on the what? Okay, the shoulder. Okay. So these are just samplings of, of all these specific, uh, specific instructions. But here in our passage, it's on an ox cart. What's up with that? How's this going to go? We should know from start, if we're reading the story all together, if we can hold all the information of the Bible together, which is super hard, like, this is not going to go well. So think about this. Where was the ark for decades? It's up on that hill, right? In that house, Abinadab. Who are his sons? Uzzah and Ahio. So who lived with this ark for decades? Uzzah and Ahio. This is not a new thing for them. They have lived in this house for decades with the ark present with them. They're not ignorant of what it is. They are not ignorant of how it should be treated. So they are willingly not listening to God's word when it comes to transporting the ark. They did what seemed right in their own eyes. It's as though they had become too accustomed to being around it. It grew, it grew normal, banal to them. They could handle this. Like they, could, they could manage this God in a box. And so they did what seems right to them. There's, there's that common thought, like familiarity breeds contempt, and it's, it's true. It's true with the way our souls are broken. Like we, we don't often just grow and grow and grow in honoring what's beautiful and good. We grow numb to it unless the Lord helps us to go the opposite way. So they, it's like they've grown numb to the preciousness of the, the ark, and so they can handle it, right? Um, and do it without trembling, with, with a, a casualness, a, a flippancy. We can manage this task and this God. So God's presence was not treated with respect, with the awe of holiness. Now that's a piece of it. There's another piece of it. Remember the backstory. So let's go to that Gustave Doré um, drawing again, that, that piece of art. So how does the ark come back from the Philistines who don't love God? How does the ark come back from the Philistines to the Jewish people? On a cart. On a cart. So now... David and the people who are responsible, Ahio and Uzzah, for tra transporting the cart, they're now taking their cues from who? From the Philistines. And they're not listening to who, who told them how to do it specifically. God, do you see where their trust is lying? They're not transporting the ark the way the Philistines, they are transporting the ark the way the Philistines did, not the way God commanded them to. Okay. So here's what appears to happen now that this is going on. So they're in transit, right? not in accordance with God's word, but what seemed right to them. So they're traveling. Um, let's, let's Google map this here. So they're traveling from here to the here, from the diamond to the little circle there. They're traveling from Kiriath-Jerim, which is also called Abu Ghosh. Um, they're, they're traveling from there to Jerusalem. So you, you can map this right now, and it, it's about 9 to 10 miles, depending upon the route that you take. That's where they're going to travel, Okay. Helps me. I hope that that helps you. Um, here's, here's another thing. By the way, you know, if you look in the upper left, you can click on Google Maps, like, I'm going to do this by bike, or I'm going to walk. There's no ox cart up there, I checked. <laughs> like, there's just no ox cart option. Um, so I did walking. 
okay? So it's going to take about three hours and 29 minutes uh, by walking longer by ox carts. Now, uh, show the next map. This, is, you know, this shows the topography. What can you tell me about that terrain just by a quick look? It's bumpy. This is hill country. This is not like the plains, okay? So keep that in mind as, as we move forward. Now, somewhere along the way of this traveling on this bumpy land, they come to a threshing floor, which will be up on a hill, by the way, because they would thresh wheat up on a hill where the wind blew, so the chaff right, and wheat would, would separate. So they're, they're coming up, up onto a threshing floor. And at the threshing floor, which, by the way, threshing floors are always places of judgment in Scripture, which is interesting, um, the oxen stumble. Maybe this is because there's an elevation change. Maybe because there's a curve in the road. Maybe it's because it's a threshing floor. What's on the ground of a threshing floor? Grain. Who's leading this cart? Animals. What do they do when they see food at their feet? They, so maybe they swerve and eat. I don't know. Speculation, but it's fun speculation. Uzzah, in reflex, reaches out to grab hold of the ark, and he dies. Now, in, in a huge understatement, you can imagine that this is a big buzzkill for the mega celebration. Like, big buzzkill. It's just over. All the nation is watching. All the nation, like, all the TV channels, all the, the social media feeds are, like, live. Everyone's watching. David is angry. Look at verse 8. And David was angry. Angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. That Perez Uzzah means the Lord broke out against Uzzah there. Uh, and David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, man, how can I, uh, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Good luck. <laughs> Oh, man. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. The Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. And then it was told to King, to King David, the Lord's blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belonged to him because of the ark of God. So David, uh, it's, it's quite literally in the text, says David became hot, angry. Like, how can this be? I'm trying to do a good thing. Like, God, I'm trying to honor you. And I look like an idiot now, and this poor guy is dead. I'm trying to do a good thing. And I go so terribly wrong. Has anybody in here like ever done something that you thought was a good thing to try to honor the Lord or love other people, and it goes terrible? And you're like, what the heck? Anyone? I'm a pastor. It happens like weekly. <laughs> ah, you know, Lord help. Um, so he's mad, right? Well, now the ark's going to stay uh, in this guy, Obed-Edom's house, for three months, and his house is blessed. It's just blessed. So David hears this, and now it's time to bring that blessing to Jerusalem. So David is ready to do this good thing again, but in a good way. Verse 12 continued. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with, what does it say? With rejoicing. With joy. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord, those who carried the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. 
And David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. That's, the, uh, that's what the priests would wear. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Celebration. The glory of God comes. Now what's missing from this passage? The ox cart. It's gone, right? It's gone. No ox cart. It says they bore, or literally they carried on their shoulders the ark. So in other words, what, what did David do in between, you know, the first incident, you know, the death and, and in between the dancing? What did he do between the death and the dancing? He read his Bible. He listened to the word of God. In 1 Chronicles 15, I believe I have that one up here as well. A lot of scripture today, guys. Uh, 1 Chronicles 15, we read, Then David said, No one may carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. By the way, in your studies this week, if you want to go deeper, read 1 Chronicles 13 and 15. It's the parallel account, and it just expands it. It opens it up. 1 Chronicles 13 and 15. So David understood that the ark was to be carried with poles on the shoulders of the Levites, just as God commanded him. Right, so, so we see that there. He, he understood that, and so they, they implement that. Okay, um, and then they, they take the ark with joy. So here's what, here's what happens. Translation into, like, normal language. David sets opinions. David sets pragmatics. And he sets efficiency of cart transportation aside. And then the priests offer a sacrifice after six steps. It gets bloody. There's blood on the path to show that they're operating out of reverence to a holy God. Now, eventually nine miles are traversed. The ark of the presence of God is carried on the shoulders of the priest into the city of Jerusalem. And David, the king, wearing the white linen clothes of a priest, dances with delight in worship to the joy of the people and to the disdain of his wife, Michal. She's not happy about that. We don't have time in this sermon for that. Um, God takes up the throne in Jerusalem. Okay, that's a lot. Like, that's a lot of what happened. But how about the why? And the how. The how in the world at this point is to Jesus. So a couple observations. First observation. Um, when David gathers his 30,000 officers, and we read about this in First Chronicles 13, uh, he's consulting them and talking to, to all these people like, here's what I'm thinking, here's what I think we should do, what do we think we should do? And it says in the, that text that it seemed right in the eyes of the people to do this thing. So th that's not all bad, that's good. But what's curiously missing from this text is what is often on the lips of David or what the, the writer says about David in previous moments where there's a big decision. And maybe you can help me here. And David, yes, so good. And David inquired of the Lord. We don't even hear that here. And David inquired of the Lord. Okay, David inquired of the Lord. So right away, if we're reading closely, we're getting a sense like, oh, how's, this, how's this thing going to go? Right? Next, another, another observation. Uzzah's actions show his assumptions. Uzzah's actions show his assumptions. What does Uzzah assume by grabbing the slipping ark? What would you imagine Uzzah assumes about things that he would grab it? That's an interesting question to me. What's his assumption that leads to that action? 
I, I, think, I think it's this. I think he assumes it's better to grab the ark than to have it touch the dirt. It's better to grab the ark than to have it touch the dirt. There's a famous quote by R.C. Sproul. This is so good. He's famously said this in his, in, in his classic book on the holiness of God. He said, The presumptuous sin of Uzzah was that he assumed his hands were less polluted than the dirt. <sighs> That's so good. Look, but here's, here's the thing. God's not averse to dirt. God's not averse to the earth. Like, he made it. He made the dust. He made us from the dust. What he is not okay with is with his creatures of earth committing cosmic treason and not trusting him and bringing death to those around them. That's what he's not okay with. And so this assumption and this reflexive action of his seems to have stemmed, by the way, from this, this long uh, burning fuse of unhealthy thinking about, about who God is and how we are to operate with him. Some kind of presumption that God can be managed, that God can be controlled or needs to be taken care of, that we need to keep this God out of the dust, keep him out of the dirt, keep him nice and clean, right? So there's some kind of thought pattern has led to this action, some kind of thought about being in charge of a God in a box. Uzzah's death is not from one reflexive decision. It's an actuality that is born from a trail of habits and a trail of thinking. Many years, many decisions in the making. This was a whole road of decisions before this fatal step. There's a whole road before this step. So Uzzah somehow sees it as his role to keep God out of the mud. I think we do that sometimes, try to keep him clean, try to take all the dust off, make sure he looks nice and shiny so people like him. Uzzah does what seems right to him, not what God has said. Now, can you see here the echoes, the parallels, the reiteration of Genesis 3? Can you see it? The fall of Adam and Eve, the tree, the fruit, and the what? The grab. The grab and the take. The grab and the take. The, the word used here isn't he touched it. It's he literally reached out and grabbed a hold of it to take it. It's a very strong grabby kind of word. It's the same thing when, when Eve reaches out to take, to take the fruit. So like Eve, Uzzah doesn't just trust God's word, but judges what looks good to him, and then he reaches out to grab and to take hold, to take charge, to control it all. And that disobedient grabbing, based upon what we judge as good or bad, well, what does that bring about? Death. Just like it brought death into the world in the Garden of Eden. Now, I want to make this super clear. I don't think Uzzah's problem is that he's not religious. I think his problem is that he's quite religious. Quite religious. I mean, that he's earnest in his beliefs that he thinks he's doing a really good thing and he tries to do that which is good, but, but he does it by his own assessment, his own strength. You know what Uzzah's name means? Strength. Uzzah's name means strength. I got this. Wow. So, the ark was put on a new cart. Let's honor God. A new cart. Never, never touched by anyone. We're going to honor God. We're going to do this better, right? We're going to do this right. We're, we're going to do like version 2.0, and we're going to show God how this thing is done. We're going to do it really, really right. New cart, everyone, right? Let's make the ride as smooth 
As pragmatic, as shiny, and as efficient as possible, we'll make sure no mud or dust gets on God's presence. It sounds noble, but how often I wonder, how often I wonder has the church been using new carts in the West? How often have I gone to some solution when trying to pastor where I put forward a new cart rather than listening to what God has said. New carts. New carts. Too often we can get acquainted with God. Too often that we, we, we find ourselves in a place where God's useful to us instead of beautiful and, and holy to us. Right? We, we get acclimated and numbed out to who he is and there's a lack of love and there's, there's a lack of, of awe and we start managing holy things. We start to try to control this God, and then he becomes part of our manipulative schemes that we think are really good intentions, but we're trusting ourselves rather than listening to his word. So we try and manage church services, and we try conforming them to our liking, wanting to pull, put the gospel on new carts, new carts that are pragmatic and efficient. Meanwhile, marginalizing what God's word actually says, marginalizing Jesus from the center and keep in mind, by the way, Uzzah was around the ark for decades. Decades. I think there could be a warning in here for some of us. We have been a church here for decades. For decades. What a blessing to have been here for so long in the city that we love. But could there be a blunting effect to the blazing splendor of who God is because of time and familiarity? Taking him too casually treating him as a tool. I wonder. We've been in church for over 50 years, VCC has. Is there a danger of growing used to the holy things of God? Cavalier, being casual, treating bright and glorious things as, meh, whatever, or I didn't quite like it today, you know. This is mine to use kind of mentality. This is mine to help me mentality versus I'm here to worship the majestic living king of the cosmos and every breath I draw is grace. It's a real and present danger, a flippant entitled attitude. And God dealt with me this week on this. Like how many times have I approached his word? Have I approached you? Have I approached this with the flippancy? He's gracious, though. He's good. So often we teach a tame, innocuous God, partly because uh, we're trying, to play into caric- trying not to play into caricatures that we think the world has. It's like, oh, we don't want to be a hellfire and brimstone church. You know, we don't want to be one of those kind of mean churches that talks about all those things because the world thinks he's a, he's a mean God. So let's not talk about that stuff. Let's talk about the nice, let's put him on a nice, new, shiny cart. So everyone likes this God as he rolls into town and, and doesn't offend him. And so we try to make him more likable and, and more palatable. And we tame the lion of Judah and put a leash on him and put him in the circle of the church. It's a circus. I mean the church right there in the middle. And just say, like, there he is. Are we entertained? Are you entertained? Oh, goodness. But the fruitfulness of God that comes to our lives is because of his holiness and who he is, so bright and so good and pure. And it's traumatic to be frail and sinful in the, the, the blazing presence of a, of, a holy, of a holy God. 
So now we have this conundrum, like this holy God, who like we can't live in front of, but this holy God whom we're called to live in front of, what do we do? Ah, check this out. With Uzzah, we see this. Judgment and death is found where there is disregard for God's presence and his word is not trusted. That's what we see in Uzzah. With Obed-Edom, we see blessing is found where there is awe for God's presence and his word is trusted. How those live together? Well, look, I don't know about you at this point, but all this land is really heavy for me. How do we abide with the brilliant fire of of our, our creator God? How do we have intimacy and union with our creator if we can't get close? How do these things come together? Is God holy or is he loving? Yes, both. At this point, I'm just aching for Jesus. I hope you're aching for Jesus at this point. See, here's how the pieces fit. The ark was the place of God's presence. The ark was where the blood of atoning sacrifice was found. The ark was a precious golden blood-covered throne of God. The ark held the revelation of God and his love for his people. Remember the three things that were in it? Aaron's staff. That blossomed. Dead wood. This was the instrument of salvation that led the people out of slavery. The stone tablets, the instruction of God, how to live well in God's world by his wisdom. The jar of manna, the provision, God would be their very nourishment. That's what was in it. This ark, by the way, was set aside, was tucked away in obscurity in a village for decades before being enthroned in Jerusalem. And when this ark of God's presence was headed towards Jerusalem, it was mishandled and grabbed at. But when the ark came forward, it it brought about delight and dancing rather than just death. You see what we're seeing here. What did I just describe? Jesus. Jesus is the presence of God. He is the place of the presence of God. He is the tabernacle. Jesus' blood, the blood of the king was shed. And it covered the cross upon which he was enthroned, atoning for the sins of an unholy people who did not trust in God's word. The three things that were in the ark, go back to that, as Aaron's staff, that miraculously blossomed, this dead wood that led them from death and slavery into life and freedom, the cross of Jesus is that dead wood that brings resurrection and life, the power of God to save his people, taking them out of sin and death and leading them home. Jesus is the perfect revelation and the expression of God's law. He lived as humanity was called to live. He gives us his spirit, turning our hearts of stone to flesh, and he writes his law on our hearts. He is our teacher as well as our savior. And he is the manna in the wilderness. He himself is the bread of life that nourishes us. And just as the ark The place of the presence of God was sidelined in obscurity in a village before it was eventually enthroned in public glory. Jesus was sidelined in obscurity and anonymity in Nazareth for 30 years before he was enthroned. And guys, even the way the ark was to be carried points us to Jesus. The presence of God, the throne of the Holy One, where there was to be sacrificial blood, was to be lifted up by men on poles of wood. It weaves together. No human being could write this and weave this in such intricacy. Now, my time is short. I want to read you this passage of Hebrews and bring us to a close. Here's what Hebrews 1 says. It says, long ago, this is New Testament, by the way, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son 
He's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, the cross, right, the sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, the throne, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He literally sits enthroned over the angels, over the cherubim. This is a reference to the ark. <laughs> Incredible. So again, with Uzzah, we see judgment and death is found where there is disregard for God's presence and his word is not trusted. With Obed-Edom, we see blessing life is found where, where there's awe of God's presence and his word is trusted. And at the cross of Christ, death is dealt with and life is delivered. Those two merge. At the cross, judgment is dished out and blesses are given. Those two cross. At the cross of Jesus, there was callous disregard for God's presence. But at the cross of Jesus, the great awe and glory of who God is revealed and shed abroad to the world. Jesus, the Son of God, came down and he got into the dust and the dirt. He was mishandled. He was abused. He was disrespected. Man. The holy God got into the dirt and dust of an unholy people to love us into holiness. And this is where, I'm sorry, I'm going to go a minute over. I'm going to go two minutes over, Jared, if, if you hear me. But I'm sorry, um, but I'm not. Because this, like, I, I believe the Lord showed me this first thing this morning when I reread the passage. So, so consider this. This is a story of incredible grace. Why? Because what God didn't do. Because what God didn't do. See, the, the priests were not even supposed to look at the ark when they went in to transport it. They were supposed to throw a bunch of linen over it and, and leather and all this stuff so people couldn't even see it because it says if they saw it, they would die. So now get this. It's on a cart. It's not covered. Two things completely wrong. If you saw it, you'd die. Who's supposed to die in this situation? Everybody! All of the nations there, 30,000 plus people there, are looking upon what should not be looked upon. But who dies? One. One dies instead of them all. Okay, one dies instead of the entire nation as the substitute. God, in his grace, didn't kill them all when it was put on the cart. He didn't kill them all when it was looked at. But one dies in the place of many. What we have here is a composite image of, of an exposed glory of God, the throne of God, exposed, and Uzzah, the one who is to carry the presence of God, dying. That is an image of the cross of Jesus Christ. My time is done, my friends. May we not put God in a box. May we not try to manage him, not try to tame him, not try to domesticate him. May we not grow weary and grow cold and cavalier to his glory may we be a people of joyous reverence let's pray heavenly father you are good to us we don't deserve this grace we don't deserve the salvation you are so good and so true you died in our place you got in the dust you got in the mud to die for the unholy to make us holy because of your love now we can live before your face Lord, my words have been many. May your spirit powerfully minister to us now as we come to this table. We love you. We need you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.